The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. So he, Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Uh, Don't know if if, uh, you've been around the church for a while or familiar with your Bible. Uh, There are a lot of accounts in the, the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are a lot of accounts of Jesus healing someone. And these healing accounts, they kind of follow set formulas. I mean, there's, there is a basic formula to it, which is someone comes to Jesus in, desper- in desperation needing to be healed or asking for something, or someone comes on behalf of someone else. There's an interaction with Jesus, and then the, the person walks away healed or renewed, or the other person's healed. There's these, these, these accounts that... They can be kind of formulaic, and if you're like me, maybe the first time reading through this short account, like this particular healing account, it seems kind of boring uh, and short and formulaic, uh, perhaps compared, like there are other healing accounts we'll be covering even when we're spending time in the Gospel of John that are, seem a lot more interesting than this one. There's more discussion, there, there's the, the, the nature of the miracle is more interesting, uh, but with these healing accounts, uh, they're... If you look at you, there's a formula to them, but if you start to look at the, the nature of the, the details of them, uh, they begin to, to get a lot more interesting, the unique details that set them apart from the others. And if you ask questions like, who's getting healed? Who is the person asking for healing? What is the thing they're asking for healing from? What gets healed? Where does the healing happen? Is it in Galilee? Is it a popular landmark? Is it in Jerusalem? When does the healing happen? Is it during a major feast? Is it on the road? How does the healing happen? There are all kinds of, there are different ways Jesus heals. Sometimes just with a word. Sometimes he he spits in the dirt and rubs dirt on people's eyes. There's significance in these things. What does Jesus say? What does he do? And I think if we begin to examine these details for this healing story, we'll see that there's a lot more depth to it than than first meets the eye. So let's, let's begin inter- interrogating this, this healing account with some of these questions. Where does, where does this healing account happen? I mean, I'm going to be referring to the text quite a bit. So uh, if you have your, your bulletin open to page 3, I'll be referring back to some verse numbers. Where does this healing happen? The text tells us right away in the first verse, verse 44. It happens in Cana in Galilee. Why is this important? Why is this significant? The text tells us why it's significant. It's where Jesus had made water into wine. It was a place where a miracle had been done, a sign, something that manifested Jesus' glory. Um, 
And something that we'll, we'll see in this passage and we, we see in the, the preceding chapters is that the people who live in this region in Cana, uh, the people of Galilee, they're really interested in seeing Jesus' signs. Uh, they, the, uh, the verses immediately before this, which we can't see in the bulletin, um, but that set some of the frame for this, this miracle, says, it says that when Jesus came to Galilee, they welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem, which is referring back to when Jesus went to Jerusalem. Chapter 2 says he did lots of signs in Jerusalem. So the Galileans are like, yeah, we'll, let's the, it's the sign worker. Welcome. Um, and this, this, this Galilean this, in Cana, this place where they, they really focus on signs, the signs of Jesus, it's a noticeable contrast with uh, what we studied last week. If you were here with us last week, we, we studied uh, the faith of the, the woman at the well, interaction with Jesus, the woman at the well, the, the Samaritan woman, the woman of Samaria, you know, the, this, this, this outsider people group who had um, were, were enemies in lots of ways of the people of Israel. Uh, they, uh, the people of Judah, they, the, the, the Samaritans uh, whom uh, had heard the story of this woman who interacted with Jesus, they didn't rely on signs, but they actually believed the testimony of the woman who told them about Jesus, and then they believed the testimony of Jesus. There's this contrast where like, they believed the word, the testimony, that the Samaritans, those who were outside, but it's these Galileans, these people in, in Cana, who rely on, they rely on signs. That's where this happens. Also really, really deep and interesting. Who? Who is this, this guy? He's an official. Like, what's an official? If I were to write the most, like, bland, nondescript title for someone ever, it would be that, something like that, right? It'd be, he's an official. It's like, it's like oh, he's a city worker. He's a government, he's a government employee. Uh, it, it doesn't. It seems like there's not much information here. Uh, he was likely uh, a wealthy man. Uh, we have some clues for this. He was likely a wealthy man, and he was likely someone who was in the court of King Herod of Herod Antipas. Uh, what are the clues? Where? What can I? How, how am I getting this? Uh, one sign that he was wealthy is he had servants. On the way back, you saw in verse 51, after having the interaction with Jesus, he's on his way back to Capernaum uh, from Cana, and his servants meet him along the way. He has servants. And if you're, you have servants, you're, you're a, wealthy, a wealthy person um, at this time. Also, uh, how do I know that he, he could have been the court of, of King Herod, of Herod Antipas? He lived in Capernaum, which was basically just down the lake a little bit uh, from King Herod's, the, the, the city that King Herod had built called Tiberias. Uh, so he was, he was, he was, so he's called someone whose his, his name official means like someone in the ro- in the royal entourage, the royal court, and he's right down the street from this particular royal court. Um, and this piecing together these details that um, it makes him look. This guy, he's he's something similar to what to what the way, the way we talk about tax collectors. Uh, maybe perhaps you've considered the, the the place of tax collectors in in the gospel accounts and how they're they're kind of these wealthy turncoats. Uh, who betrayed their, their people, sacrificed some of the distinctives of, of being a, a people of um, the, the Jewish people on the way, following God. Um, that's kind of like this guy. He's a royal official who's benefiting. He's living in a court, the, the, the court of Herod. This is a, a court that's, they're benefiting financially, and in, they're benefiting through the power they have, because they've basically made like a, a special deal with the empire, with the Romans, with the big bad guys. They're like a little puppet regime. They, they're willing to sacrifice Jewish distinctives in order to make peace with the empire. That's what this guy 
represents. Uh, the Herod Antipas, the court, the, you know, this, this king, he, this, that was the guy who, who had John the Baptist executed, uh, if, you're, if you need some, some reference to other stories from the Gospels. And when did, here's, here's an interesting thought. I can't, you know, you can't confirm or deny these things. But when Herod Antipas had uh, John the Baptist, he ordered for John the Baptist to be executed, he was having a banquet with his court. Could this guy have been there when John the Baptist was ordered executed? Maybe. Or he would have been very closely connected with the folks who would have been there. That's, the, that's what we know about this guy. So this guy coming to rural Galilee, he would have been someone who was treated with suspicion. Uh, he was, you know, like I said, he's part of a pub regime. Wealth comes at the expense of the Jews. There's just a really wide class gap from where, who he is, where he's coming from, to where, to where he goes to meet with Jesus here. In a lot of ways, Jesus is like a country bumpkin preacher. He comes from Nazareth. We've seen that already in the Gospel of John. It's like the first, uh, the first, our first sermon in this series was his interaction with Nathaniel, who's like, what good comes out of Nazareth? Um, this is kind of like, here's the, the, a, a, an image I thought that's kind of similar to what, if this were to happen like in our time. This would be like, it would be like someone who's the chief of staff for a U.S. senator's office leaving Washington, D.C., and driving to go seek healing for his son from, like, a popular preacher or healer in, like, rural West Virginia. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you feel that? Can you see why if such a guy, a D.C. staffer, showed up in rural West Virginia, how, like, that guy just, like, as he steps out of his car, he would be kind of treated with suspicion, justifiably, perhaps, uh, Forget the, D, forget the D.C. staffer. Imagine if you went to rural Virginia seeking something like this. Um, or if you, don't, if you can't think about it for yourself, imagine if I did and I showed up. I often wear boat shoes. Imagine if I showed up in my boat shoes and I was wearing this shirt and I have this haircut and I showed up in rural West Virginia and there's, there are ways that just me Step, like the, the, the cultural difference between like a cosmopolitan, like a city where we're at here and going there, that I'll just be treated with suspicion just because I was there. And so it is with this official who shows up. What's our assessment of this guy, this official? It's, it's mixed. And I think that the text shows that it should be mixed. Um, on the one hand, this guy is he's clearly desperate. And clearly he thinks Jesus is worth considerable sacrifice to get to. Uh, the walk from Capernaum to Cana, it would have been around 18 miles, uh, which and it would have been around a thousand foot gain in elevation. The Sea of Galilee, Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee, which is like 700 feet below sea level. He had to go uphill and walk 18 miles. If we, and we, the, the story gives us like these time cues uh, where we learn that Jesus healed his son at the seventh hour, which would have been 1 p.m. He, and then, so presumably the guy, so what this guy did then, if it's 7 p.m., it's like a six or seven hour walk for him to get from Capernaum to Cana. This guy, it means this guy probably woke up at sunrise, left his home at 6 a.m., and walked straight to Jesus to interact with him at 1 p.m. It's a long walk. Uh, he, this guy, he had servants who he could have sent. You know, the D.C. staffer could have sent his interns, but he didn't, he went himself on foot. He drove straight to West Virginia. Jesus also, he has the boldness to ask Jesus to come back with him, to heal his son. It's like, hey, 
hey, you like if I talk to one of you after the service, it's like, hey, uh, I need you, we need to go drive to Cleveland. You want to go? Like, I need your help. Uh, I want, we need to go drive to the Outer Banks. You want to come with me? It's a bold ask. He comes in the middle of the day. We've seen how the Nicodemus in chapter 3 came in the middle of the night because he was trying to hide. This man comes in the middle of the day. He humbles himself. He's desperate. But, on the other hand, he's, there, we have these signs that he's also, he, he's a sign seeker. He's like the Galileans. This, this critique of, uh, that, Jews, that Jesus is going to have of, of all the people of Galilee. He's, he's interested in Jesus because Jesus can do stuff. He's heard about Jesus' reputation to help get things done, to do miracles. And Je- so Jesus, who knows the heart of man, doesn't speak very tenderly with this guy. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, look, look what this, so what, this man comes in desperation walking after walking seven hours. Ask Jesus to heal his son. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Maybe not the response we were expecting. He, the, an interesting thing about this quote. When, in this quote, when he says you, um, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The you there is actually a plural you. And if you were like, if you have your Bibles open in your ESV, you'll see a footnote for that. Plural. That means that what Jesus is saying here, he's asked a direct question by this one guy, but then Jesus makes a statement about like you all, y'all. Um, he said, so Jesus says, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all won't believe. So he goes from a singular answer to he goes to a plural response, which is kind of curious. What even though the official asked Jesus an individual question, Jesus responds by pointing out that this guy is doing, he's doing something that represents the weakness, the lack of faith of y'all, of everyone who's in the audience there, the Galileans, the, those, those people of Cana who are just interested in signs. They're interested in Jesus because he does stuff. They don't trust his word like the Samaritans. They don't believe the testimony. They want to see what's in it for them. They've seen him doing things and want to be around his power. Uh, they're they're kind of like, uh, part of the reason I was glad Laura opened with this, this art image to, to open up our call to worship is I, I, there, I have like an art image for this of someone who seeks signs instead of uh, relying on, on like the, the word or the messenger. Um, I haven't been to one of these in, in a long time, but maybe some of you all have been to a First Friday. First Friday is when like a lot of different art exhibits in a particular area of the town, like maybe it's like along Frankfurt Ave or something, art exhibits will open their doors and they'll let folks in to see the, the work of different artists and they'll often offer food and free drinks and it's, it's a fun time, you know, walking from studio to studio on the first Friday of the month. Um, imagine, like this is what the, the, uh, the Galileans, what this guy's like. These are people who show up to a First Friday art exhibit uh, not because they're interested in the artist, not because they're interested in the art, not because they're there for what the artist is trying to communicate, but because they're there for the free wine. And remember, Cana was the place where water was, water was turned into wine. So that's like a appropri- very appropriate illustration. They're there for the signs. And Jesus sees that in this guy, this official. And can we just pause like Jesus' response here? Can you just pause and think about like how, how stark and offensive it is that Jesus would respond this way? Like, this man, he, the, this man walked seven hours through probably a pretty hot Galilean sun uphill. And he, respond, he, he, he begs Jesus for something of desperation. And Jesus kind of responds by calling him out. 
Does that sound like the Jesus you know? It's the Jesus we have here. Um, when you come to Jesus with the thing that you're most desperate about um, for yourself or on behalf of someone you love, and you bring your petition to him, um, how do you expect him to respond? Is it ever, ever possible, is it ever possible that the beginning of healing for you, for those whom you love, begins with a word of challenge? Is that ever possible? It's the case here. So you can feel like, you know, we, we read through the story fast at the beginning at the, for the, the service, but like going slowly through this, like, can you feel like a bit of the, the tension and like, what's this guy going to do? This is, a, this is a, a royal official. This is a man of wealth and power who's come a long way. And he's been called down by a hillbilly preacher. He's going to walk away? We have other go- in, in other stories in the gospel, Jesus says a harder word, and the guy, guys leave. They walk away sad. Yet the official, he responds. He pleads in a way. And he says, sir, come down before my child dies. Uh, the word sir here, uh, it's, 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 a, it's the Greek word kurie, uh, in a noun of address. Uh, it comes from the word kurios. It's one of the most common words in the New Testament. It's a word that has a, lot, a really wide, like, it can mean a lot of words. I don't wanna, you don't want to hang too much on, on an interpretation like, uh, on, of one word. Um, it can mean anything from like a, tone of, like a word of reverence or respect, like sir, ma'am, uh, but it can mean anything up to, kurios could mean all the way up to Lord of the universe. Um, what can we say? Him addressing Jesus as Lord, as kurios. Um, the official lowers himself before Jesus. You know, this is the man who, in whom, who, who has the power. He lowers himself. He acknowledges who has the power before this peasant from Nazareth. Um, He sees who has the power and who doesn't. Consider again the D.C. staffer who's driven to West Virginia, um, lowering himself, and just the the thought of him doing that. Um, Can you see how such a man driving to rural West Virginia, uh, how a hard word may have been what he needed? What may have been what he, he needs to reach the point of lowering him, himself more. And Jesus responds a bit harshly, maybe not harshly, but in a very short, a very brief way. He says, in, in response to the, this man lowering himself and pleading more, Jesus says, go, your son will live. Um, now, the, the will live here, it's, it's uh, you know, that's like a future tense. It's like, I will go to IGA after church and buy bagels for my sons. I will, uh, you know, it sounds like I will watch the Eagles later today. That, that's the future tense. The, the future tense doesn't really exist in the original language here like it does in ours. Um, and really this is just, uh, it can be implied from the context of what happens in the rest of the story. Uh, but really it's, it's more of like Jesus says it in like the, a present sense and an ongoing sense. It's more like Jesus says, he, he said a more like bald translation would be go. Your son lives. Go. Your son's alive. Your son is living. Go. Go home. Your son lives. There's still like a brevity, a starkness to Jesus' response. And it, maybe you're getting this impression like Jesus is like, he's, his responses with this guy are, they're, they're sharp and firm 
And it's, it's interesting when you look across the, the interactions Jesus has with different people in the Gospel of John, where when he's talking with, and this is something that John Alexander noted me as we were talking about this passage this week, is that when he talks to the poor, when he talks to the disabled, when he talks to women, he usually is like more conversational and warm. But when he talks to people, men of, in, who have more power, like Nicodemus, who comes in at night, or this guy, an official from the royal court, he kind of sounds harsh. As if to say, like, those who are low in the world, Jesus needs to, re- to, needs to uplift them. Um, and those who are high in the world, Jesus needs to humble them. And that's part of the life, uh, being in the life of Jesus. Um, how, does this official, how does this official respond? How does this story wrap up? Where are we going? He, the, a major theme in the Gospel of John is belief and having faith. And the text really wants us to see, like shines a bright light on, on there twi- there's twice that it says that this man believed after hearing the words of Jesus. Uh, the first time is in, is in verse 50. Uh, Jesus says to him, go, your son's alive. And then the man, be- the man believed. The word believed comes from the same word for faith. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And then he's on his way back. Presumably he spends the night somewhere. On the next day on the road, he encounters his servants. Servants tell him that his son was he- has, has, has been healed. And, and he confirms the time of day. And then the father knew that that was the hour. And looking at the, the very last lines. And he himself believed he had faith. That's the second time. And his household. There's, it says he believes twice. It's kind of re- it seems repetitive. Uh, what... It's his, well, first of all, we should say, like, his response to that first faith, that first believing, it's surprising. Uh, certainly surprising because we've been talking about how the man was, the Jesus was dealing a bit harshly with him. And he has a, this interaction. He walks seven hours to have this incredibly brief interaction with Jesus and then believes Jesus and walks home. It's the, this is not what you would have, it's incredibly humbling and surprising. But it's also, even more than that, it's surprising because remember what the pattern is from where he is in Galilee, in Cana. What are, what are they like? They like signs. They're the ones who show up for the free wine. Uh, this guy, and Jesus says, you know, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe, you all. And this guy breaks that. He breaks the pattern. Because he leaves Jesus having not, he hasn't seen confirmation or a sign that his son's been healed. He actually does believe the word, the testimony of Jesus, that first faith. It's surprising. It breaks the pattern. He has no confirmation. Imagine my, this poor D.C. staffer I'm beating up. Imagine the D.C. staffer, again, chief of staff, um, as he has this brief interaction with the, the, the hillbilly preacher from West Virginia, and he's driving back to his home in Washington, D.C. Do you think he'd be cynical on the drive back? This official's not on his way back to Capernaum. He has faith. And I'm, I want to I allegorize this, his, his return back a little bit for you um, um, as we, we seek to bring this, this text, what it means to us, this story, what it means to us. Um, think about how this story is, is all of our story. There's, so the, there are these two faiths, right, that this man experiences. He has a first faith of hearing Jesus' words and trusting in them. And then he has the second faith of seeing Jesus' words fully confirmed and fulfilled. And there's a fullness. And there's just some of the, the, the clues about these two faiths are really, they're really striking to me. The first faith, um, 
he has the words of Jesus. The second faith, the words of Jesus are confirmed. The first faith, he's trudging back to the reality, to reality with hope. Armed primarily with hope, that's it. The second faith, the hope has been fulfilled. There's wholeness, there's flourishing. The first faith, he's called an official. He's an official who called Jesus Lord. He's a guy who gets it. But he's an, he's an official. Did you, realize, did you see what he was called? Second faith. Do you see what, you, what he was called? The man is called after he finds out that his son's been healed? He's called a father. There's something about, like, there's, there's, there's a new, like, how he's identified is different in a way. There's a relational fullness with the second faith. First faith, he's a man going, believe, who's believing alone on the walk back. Second faith, this man and his whole, he, he, in his whole household belief. First faith is promise. God makes promises to him, to us, to his people. Promise. The second faith is one of seeing and believing in the, the fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. And all of our, all of our life, all of us, those, those of you here who have faith in Christ, all of our lives are the road back to Capernaum. It's us in this space, this, this road between prom- the promises of God, the words of God, which we tr- seek to trust, and the fulfillment of seeing them come to full fruition. And I think that um, there are times where we, we're in our lives where, where the words of Jesus, where the promises of God, where we get these like flashes, these visions of like the second faith moment that this guy gets. I mean, this guy got it, right? Uh, we have prayers that are answered about someone we love or for ourselves. God provides for us financially when we don't have a job. God keeps us sober from our addictions. Uh, we, you know, these are second faith moments. We, we, have a, we come to a clearer vision of who God is, and we love him, and our souls are moved. Uh, God gives us an experience of friendship and community and wholeness that we've been longing for. We get these like second faith, these fulfillment moments Um, but 99% of the time, or at least that's how it feels like to me, we're really on the road with the first word, longing for the second, longing for the second word, the first faith, longing for the second faith. And considering like that, that image and me allegorizing this man's walk back, um, um, that we're waiting for. I want you to examine your hearts and I want you to ask like, are you more like the cynical DC staffer driving back? Or are you more like this official as you look at your life who has faith on the way back? Um, are you living day to day like these statements, these statements I'm about to read? Are you living today as if these things are as true as it when Jesus says, your son lives? Here's a word of Jesus. He says, these are all from the Gospel of John. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Having those words, having been given those words, Jesus, about your death, are you believing them on the way towards waiting for the fulfillment? Some more words of Jesus. That's bad news first. I feel like there's a rule like you need to say bad news first. I'll give you the bad news first. Uh, bad news is, is kind of like what I'm saying. 99% of the time, um, maybe 100% of the time, you'll feel like it. 
uh, we're going to be awaiting confirmation for that second faith, for, that, the f- for fulfillment. So much of, of our lives in Jesus is, is being in that between, be stuck between, not stuck, but walking towards fulfillment, be, between promise and fulfillment, between he's, the word your son lives and the confirmation that the son is alive. Um, let, me, let me sharpen this bad news more. Jesus didn't come into the world to relieve suffering. Um, he did signs, because he loves us, to manifest his glory. Um, but that's not why he fund- fundamentally why he came into the world. He does do signs. There's a sign in this passage. Maybe this sounds like a, a funky application of this. I think it's true. Again, the way he's railing against folks who are demanding signs. Jesus didn't come to the world to relieve suffering. Jesus says in the next chapter, he, said this, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who the Father has sent. Jesus came to the world not to relieve, not to relieve suffering primarily, though that does happen. He came to, to craft a people, to call a people to himself who will walk, who will follow him on the road of suffering that leads to a new life, a fulfill, like a, a new glorious fulfillment at the end of all things, trusting that Jesus, trusting Jesus' words in faith, that first faith, that one day, that second faith, that that moment will be true. That's why Jesus came. Here's the good news. As we're on that road, like the, all the things we do in faith, however strong or weak our faith is, trusting in the Jesus' words about that second fulfillment, like all of the, it'll all be worth it. It'll be worth it. The son lives. Jesus is powerful. All the things that we do in faith will be so immeasurable, will be worth it, even if we don't see it until the day that we die. This means that us seeking to raise our kids in the way of the Lord, day in, day out, though it's tiring, though it feels impossible, so immeasurably worth it. Us seeking reconciliation, with someone that we've wronged. Or, or us, maybe harder, us forgiving someone who's wronged us in faith. Because Jesus leads us in this. Be so immeasurably worth it, even though it really doesn't feel like it. Us living a life of self-control, even if that possibly means for some of us sobriety from substance until the day we die. It'll be so immeasurably worth it. A spin-off of that one. Us giving, up, us giving up kinds of sexual satisfaction to instead use our bodies in ways that God, the creator, instructs us to because he's the Lord of our bodies. It'll be so immeasurably worth it. Holding our wealth, our power, our time with open hands. Letting God guide us in how to give them up for him and for the, love of, and for the benefit of others. It'll be so immeasurably worth it. It'll be so worth it. And here's more good news. Since, you know, we're into the gospel here. Gospel means good news. We'll give more, I'll give more good news. More good news. Uh, the, the book of Hebrews says it this way, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is as responsible for our faith as an author is responsible for the words on a page of a book. He is the one who speaks the first word. He gives the faith. There's ways in which this, the, this guy, the brusque interaction this guy he has with this guy gives him the faith. 
gives the man, the official, the faith. But Jesus is also, he's also the perfecter of our faith. Um, he doesn't just give us faith and let us go, go on our way. Uh, by his spirit, he gives us strength along the way. Uh, he, he gives us faith on the road to Capernaum. Um, and the, the truth, ultimately, is that on the road back, as we're between promise and fulfillment, is that we're not alone. We're not alone. Jesus says this somewhere else. He says, behold, I am with you unto the end of the age. Jesus walks with us as we're between faiths, between promise and fulfillment. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.